Where are these missing pages? This map. We must have these pages back. This one's got pages missing. Why are the pages missing? Like a book with missing pages. What comes to mind when you think of the word community? It's a pretty vague term. It's used a lot these days to describe most often transgressions against certain communities. It can also be used just to describe small groups of people that gather for some sort of uh, common cause. In modern day, it even expands to, you know, millions of people. But the era that we're talking about right now and where we will be continuing talking about the early 17th century, the early 1600s, the idea of community was very small. There was no black community or anything like that. There was the community at their church, the local church in England, for instance. Most often this was several small families, maybe large families, but just several families that all came together and worked together in a small village, for instance, went to the same church, prayed to the same God, etc., etc. The early 17th century was a time before our current understanding of government, our current understanding of what a state is, what the responsibilities of someone who is the citizen of a state are. The ideas of Thomas Hobbes wouldn't really be percolating until halfway through this episode and even then wouldn't be written down until the end of it. And that's just the beginning of what is considered the modern era of philosophy. The work of Francis Bacon, eventually of uh, John Locke, they are non-existent in this world. This is still the world of Machiavelli. And increasingly, it's the world of the Reformation. Martin Luther and John Calvin completely reshaped the world. And by the end of this century, by the middle of the century even, would reshape the continent of Europe, uh, not by their own hand, but their ideas would shape the continent in a very, very bloody way. And the people that are living on the British Isles were no exception to this. It was just as bloody by the end of the century, and the massive changes that occurred in England due to the ideas of the Reformation led to these communities fracturing, splintering, changing, and some of them being forced to move, to leave the land that they grew up in to find a new one. And this new land that they found, or well, they thought that they found, had communities of its own. And this story that we're going to talk about, the story of Plymouth Plantation, is the story of two communities clashing, and for part of it, seemingly coming together to form one. Now, We'll see what happens with that and if that stays the way that it does, but this is slightly different from what we saw last episode and the previous episode before that, where there was no care for community, no care for these new people that they found on this new land. But those at Plymouth, maybe due to the effects of subjugation of the community that they were within themselves, saw the world a little bit different. So let's get into it. The AP History Notes does not get too in-depth with the Plymouth Plantation and the Pilgrims. This is the second one of those benchmark dates. Remember, Jamestown, Virginia, 1607. This one is Plymouth Plantation, 1620. The AP notes state that this is the first settlement in New England with the Pilgrims in 1620, and they were separatist Puritans that wanted a complete separation from the Anglican Church. The Pilgrims, before moving to the New World, were in Holland, but their children were becoming too Dutch, and they were losing their distinct religious view, so they needed to leave. Therefore, the pilgrims led by William Bradford set out for America. They received a patent from the Virginia Company of London, the same company that paid for Jamestown. And in 1620, 35 pilgrims and 66 other voyagers boarded the Mayflower. However, there was a problem. They landed north of the jurisdiction of the Virginia Company, and the patent was not valid. The problem was solved 
when 41 of the men signed the Mayflower Compact and established a colony known as Plymouth Plantation. The question here is asked, what did they agree to? They agreed to have a civil government to enact laws for the good of the colony. And there was the idea of the civil body politic and shows that there was a growing tradition of self-government in the colonies. Continuing on, the notes state that the Plymouth Plantation suffered greatly, similar to the Jamestown settlers. The colonists went through their own starving time, and by spring, nearly half of the colonists were dead. But with the help of Squanto, an English-speaking Indian, and the local Wampanoag Indians, the pilgrims were able to learn how to plant maize and other native plants, and were able to grow and save up enough food for the winter, and they had the first Thanksgiving. And then the question is asked, what was the reason that the local Indians were so willing to help the pilgrims? And my answers were, and this is again one of those questions where several people in the class answered it, but I just wrote down two of them. Their intentions were different and they had better communication, along with the fact that most of the coastal Indians were already dead at this point. And that's it for this, at least for this era. There is some more a little bit later, but that comes after another major player comes into the region and muddies the picture a little bit. So that's as far as we get with the Plymouth Plantation story in the APUS history notes. Like last episode, the facts are all there, I believe. However, there's a lot of detail missing that I'm going to get into, and that's the point of this podcast. So let's get our buckle hats on and fill in those missing pages. To start off this episode, we have to go back in time a little bit, prior to some of those events that happened in the last episode, to 1603, with the ascension of King James I. I mentioned last episode that I would go into a little bit more depth about how King James and his reign affected the religious institutions in England at the time. See, his predecessor, Elizabeth I, kind of took a hands-off approach to religion and was not quite, I wouldn't say, tolerant of any such any specific religion, but kind of was ambivalent to them, largely. And she was a large proponent of overseas exploration of the English and, and had given a lot of money and a lot of backing to many different attempts to both settle in America and also finding the Northwest Passage, which we will come back to in a later episode more clearly. She also raised a lot of money from the likes of Francis Drake and other privateers slash pirates to make the crown a lot, a lot of money for these continuing efforts. But her successor, as I've stated, King James I, was quite different in his proclivities towards religion and eventually even towards the colonies. King James was the king of Scotland, King James VI of Scotland, for 20 years before his ascension. He was born and raised a Catholic and would do his best to make life easier for Catholics in England after Elizabeth's more harsh treatment. See, Elizabeth was mostly ambivalent towards religion, but she did not like the Catholics. She was very strongly opposed to them undermining what her father built in the uh, the Church of England. So let's transition to a more anti-Catholic queen, to a pro-Catholic king, was not seen immediately. Though he was born a Catholic, it was not seen by his critics, and from the start, in 1605, two years after his ascension, Guy Fawkes uh, led several other Catholics in the gunpowder plot to end James' reign before it really had a chance to begin. Several extremely radical Catholics tried to blow up the House of Lords in 1605. It was thwarted, though, and the perpetrators were hanged and quartered, and this probably radicalized King James himself. He did everything in his power after this point to impose his will, to show that he was king 
and he stood next to God himself. And he created a new translation of the Bible, the King James Bible, which might be the most well-known Bible, uh, and was more favorable to his ideas of religion. And this is also the start of his extreme persecution of any mild reformer of the Church of England. See, the Church of England was still largely in the form and shape of the Roman Catholic Church. There wasn't much difference other than names at this time. And there were many, many groups, such as the Puritans and Separatists, that wanted to basically completely change and reform the Church of England at its core. And this was obviously after the the Reformation uh, in the mainland, also you know, a hundred years after the creation of the Church of England itself. So these ideas had been percolating for decades, if not longer. But even moderate reformers of the Church of England were persecuted. And all of this was to make the Church of England more friendly to uh, the Roman Catholic Church in hopes to rekindle that relationship. Later on in his life, he would back the Catholics in the Thirty Years' War and would have pursue a marriage between his son and Maria Anna, a Spanish princess. Though this was foiled, Charles did end up marrying the Catholic daughter of Louis XIII, Henrietta Maria. Now, outside of religion, where this we will stick mostly, King James was seen as cruel and tyrannical. He viewed his rule as truly absolute, and he was one of the first to give the idea of divine right to rule. This, now, this idea had not existed yet. Thomas Hobbes had not written the Leviathan, so these ideas of absolute rule, absolute monarchy, were not really well-formed at this point. But King James was starting to practice this philosophy. He viewed his rule as absolute and treated his subjects as less than human, expecting nothing but abject loyalty. He would summon Parliament just to fill his coffers and spent it much faster than his predecessors, and he would dissolve Parliament if any solution was not to his liking. He would blame the Puritans for any of this resistance. He went so far as to challenge the English common law, a, a English tradition, not a full constitution, but an English tradition of law that dated back to the Magna Carta, dating back to 1215 AD, which was meant to limit the power of the monarchy and was a precursor to the idea of liberty that would be born in the 17th and 18th centuries. Now we'll come back to this a little bit later when we start talking a little bit more in depth about the politics of King James I, but suffice it to say, he was extremely tyrannical. He was chosen by God to be made king and to rule his subjects, and they were, by the law of God, supposed to give him loyalty. But on the religious side of things, his persecution of religion specifically would have extreme ramifications in American history and the history of the world really. His persecution of reformers of the Anglican Church and his teachings of Roman Catholicism led to large groups of people defying him. And these groups are largely called Puritans. In large part, Puritans were Calvinists, and they wanted a much smaller hierarchy in their religious teachings. They thought that the Roman Catholic Church was corrupt and did not actually teach God's word. So, when they were persecuted by King James in the early 1600s, they split into two different groups, those that wanted to reform the church radically from within, and those that wanted to completely separate themselves from the Anglican church entirely and create their own. In 1607, about a hundred of these separatists left England for the Netherlands, a country that tolerated, though, did not fully accept most religious sects. In relative terms, though, they were extremely tolerant. 
These separatists were mostly from one small area in northeastern England. One of the leaders of this movement was William Bradford, who would eventually become known as the Pilgrim Leader. And this is what these separatists became known as, was Pilgrims. During their time in Holland, the Pilgrims took jobs in the cloth industry in Leiden, and over time many worried that their kids were becoming more and more influenced by the Dutch culture and decided that they could not stay. And William Bradford wrote about this, and this is from the book A Stranger Among Saints by Jonathan Mack. He quotes Bradford here, quote, Of all sorrows most heavy to be borne was that many of their children by these occasions and great licentiousness of the youth in the country and the manifold temptations of the place were drawn away by evil examples into extravagant and dangerous courses, getting the reins off their necks and departing from their parents. Some became soldiers, others took upon them far voyages by sea, and others some worse courses, tending to dissoluteness and the danger of their souls, to the great grief of their parents and dishonor of God, so that they saw their posterity would be in danger to degenerate and be corrupted. End quote. The pilgrims, these separatists, also viewed it as their God-given destiny to create a perfect Protestant plantation to challenge those of Catholic Spain and France and the New World. So they sought the help of some venture capitalists, namely Thomas Weston. And Weston worked with a company called the Merchant Adventures of London, but had difficulty fully funding this trip. There were other different groups of pilgrims that had tried to go over to the New World and were unsuccessful. And at this point, Virginia was failing, though I don't know how much the pilgrims actually knew about this. It's likely that they had heard some tellings of the terrible conditions in Virginia. But Thomas Weston was able to eventually, after lots of haggling, get an agreement that all profits would go to the company and funding was secured. Weston, in order to get funding, also had to hire several non-Puritans. This group was called the Strangers, whereas the Puritans were called the Saints. In February of 1620, King James granted a charter and the expedition was set to begin. It was decided that fishing would be the main source of income, though they did not hire any fishermen, and though they were craftsmen and tradesmen mostly, they did not fish. This did not dissuade them, as we've seen in previous attempts to colonize. This logic does not matter. Two ships were hired, the Speedwell and the Mayflower, Though, before they could actually make their way to the New World, several troubles caused some delays in their departure. The Speedwell sprung a leak immediately after launching, and after repairs were made, sprung a leak again, leading the voyagers to be stuck with one ship, the Mayflower. And they were also forced to sell most of their provisions to further fund the voyage after these failures led many investors to jump ship. It is possible that the Speedwell was actually sabotaged, as the captain wanted to not go on this journey. He was he was afraid it would be a failure. So he fitted uh, sails much too large for the ship, and it caused the mast to torque too much, which led to leaks in the hull. It's also possible that some of the Dutch sailors were not happy with the pilgrims encroaching where they had a small settlement along the Hudson River. Regardless of all of this, the Mayflower finally departed for the New World on September 6, 1620, with only 41 of the 102 passengers on board being saints. Christopher Martin was chosen to be the governor of this voyage, but his distrust of the pilgrims and vice versa, along with the distrust between the sailors and the passengers, led to terrible conditions. Martin was abusive to all of his passengers, even the sailors and there was a risk of mutiny the entire voyage. The general hygiene of this ship, which was, to say the least, terrible, exacerbated all of this to a near boiling point. However, the mission was seen as much more important than any petty squabbles that they had. Finally, after 65 days at sea, and just a couple days before the ship would have taken too much damage to continue, 
On November 9th, 1620, land was spotted at Cape Cod. Unfortunately, this fell outside of the charter granted by the king. The charter that they were granted in 1619 by, by the king was supposed to be for them landing in the mouth of the Hudson River. However, they landed far north of there. An attempt was made to travel to the Hudson River in the south, but the shoals and sandbars near Cape Cod made that journey impossible. So they were turned around and dropped anchor in the harbor away from the open ocean. To give a sense of how terrible this decision would have been if they had tried to actually go to the Hudson River, Nathaniel Philbrick in his book Mayflower lays out the area and the sea conditions surrounding Cape Cod. Quote, Pollock Rip is a part of an intricate and ever-changing maze of shoals and sandbars stretching between the elbow of Cape Cod and the tip of Nantucket Island, 15 or so miles to the south. The huge volume of water that moves back and forth between the ocean to the east and Nantucket Sound to the west rushes and swirls amid these shoals with the ferocity that is still, almost 400 years later, terrifying to behold. It's been claimed that half the wrecks along the entire Atlantic and Gulf Coast of the United States have occurred in this area. In 1606, the French explorer Samuel Champlain attempted to navigate these waters in a small pinnace. This was Champlain's second visit to the Cape, and even though he took every precaution, his vessel fetched up on a shoal and was almost pounded to pieces before he somehow managed to float her free and sail into Nantucket Sound. Champlain's pinnace drew four feet. The deeply laden Mayflower drew twelve. End quote. After landing at Cape Cod, at the tip of Cape Cod, a new dilemma now surfaced, that of governance. The interim governor, Christopher Martin, that was chosen for the journey on the Mayflower, now had to step down and a new government had to be created. It was understood at this point that the charter that was granted was now invalid if they wanted to start a colony here, which was the only viable choice. As time was running out, before the bitter winter hit. Because of this uncertainty, the crew and all of the passengers began to speak mutinously. To keep the peace, a voluntary contract was drafted laying out the new government that needed to be set up to prevent a mission failure before touching land at all. This document, drafted by William Bradford, became known as the Mayflower Compact. It was signed on November 11, 1620, and the first election was held immediately after signing and John Carver was chosen as the first governor. I'm going to take a short pit stop here, and I'm going to read the Mayflower Compact. It's it's not long, so bear with me, but I want to talk about this document because I feel like it's important for the rest of this story as a sort of foundational document in American history. And it is probably well known in APUS history, but I still think it's important to stop here and talk about it. Quote, in the name of God, amen. We, whose names are underwritten, the loyal subjects of our dread sovereign lord, King James, by the grace of God, of Great Britain, France, and Ireland, King, Defender of the Faith, etc., have undertaken for the glory of God and advancement of the Christian faith and the honor of our king and country a voyage to plant the first colony in the northern parts of Virginia. Do, by these presents, solemnly and mutually in the presence of God and one of another, covenant and combine ourselves together into a civil body politic for our better ordering and preservation and furtherance of the ends aforesaid. And by virtue hereof do enact, constitute, and frame such just and equal laws, ordinances, acts, constitutions, and offices from time to time as shall be thought most meet and convenient for the general good of the colony, unto which we promise all due submission and obedience, in witness whereof we have hereunto subscribed our names at Cape Cod, the 11th of November, in the reign of our sovereign lord, King James of England, France, and Ireland, the 18th, and of Scotland, the 54th, Anno Domini, 1620. This document was signed by 41 on board. Most servants, the sailors, and seven others did not sign. It's likely that all seven of those that did not sign were just too sick to sign, as all of them died shortly thereafter. Now, this document today can be seen as a sort of proto-constitution. If we remember, 
This is the era in which the rise of absolute monarchy is seen as the key feature. Thomas Hobbes, though has not written Leviathan, is alive, and these ideas are starting to become more and more prevalent. A lot of what is said in here, the idea of a civil body politic, the idea that laws, ordinance, etc. must be convenient for the general good of the colony, this is, I think, the most important part, unto which we promise all due submission and obedience. They are obedient to the law. Now, these are all Christians, and that's why there's a lot of glory to God, etc. But this can be simplified to mean the consent of the governed, an idea that is extremely, extremely important in American history and American political history uh, and political writing during the Revolution. This document wasn't written with political theory in mind. It was merely an attempt at harmony and cohesion in a group aboard the ship, but it's likely based on the ideals of the Puritans in which their congregants would govern their own practices, and these congregations would be liable to each other. But in order to make sure that the strangers were on board, they had to make a more secular version of it, not quite a church estate as it was called at the time where leaders were elected and authority was given to the congregants, but instead of an elected leader of a church, it was the elected leader of a colony. Now, this idea would have ripples throughout history, as even the founding fathers, during the creation of the Declaration of Independence and the United States Constitution, were influenced by this document in their writings. It also came before any of the work of John Locke and before the major works of Thomas Hobbes. And future president, John Quincy Adams, spoke about the importance of this document and how it foreshadowed the Declaration of Independence. In Mayflower, Nathaniel Philbrick quotes him, This is perhaps the only instance in human history of that positive original social compact which speculative philosophers have imagined as the only legitimate source of government. Here was a unanimous and personal assent by all the individuals of the community to the association by which they became a nation, end quote. Now, I don't want to stick here too long, but I do feel like it's important to get an understanding of how important this document is. It, it wasn't important to them other than to keep the peace. But these ideas of the government working for the people instead of the, the people working for the government as they had left behind in England with King James were vital. And whatever some people may think of the Puritan influence in American culture today, some of it I do think is overblown. This will never be overstated. The Mayflower Compact changed the way that Americans, as they would become known as, viewed government. And it still is how people view government today. Moving forward, once this document was signed, the people on board could finally work to find a actual final spot to land. In order to find that spot, three different exploration missions were sent out to search Cape Cod for a reasonable landing spot for the people on board. Now, the English at this time, these pilgrims knew that there were people living in this land. They knew about the Indians. Due to the disease that had decimated the Indian population, the risk was lower than it was in Virginia, but it was not zero. Time was also at a premium because they needed to make sure that they could face this winter that was coming soon. The first two of these expeditions explored the northern tip of the peninsula. Several small groups of Indians were seen during the trips, but contact was never made. Graves and corn stores were found in mounds along the beach, signaling that there was activity. The graves were largely left, but the corn was stolen by the English as they moved. Despite the terrible conditions that were continuing to worsen on board, and many people becoming sick and food becoming more and more scarce, a third expedition was necessary, as these first two did not give a clear indication of a good spot to land. 
The third trip took the colonists in their small shallop southward down the peninsula in the search of the Nauset in order to establish some trade. A blizzard slowed their progress and they made camp on the shore. Near midnight, a cry from the woods startled awake the English and shots were fired into the woods to prevent an attack. This did not help, and in the morning hours the Indians attacked. Only four of the colonists were armed with flintlock muskets, arrows were fired from the shadows of the trees, a musket shot into the trees scared the Indians into a retreat. No one was injured on either side, but it was now known that it is not safe for the English here. When they left this beach, they were forced to row along the shore, and eventually they found a harbor that was very promising. Edward Winslow was on this journey, this third expedition, and he recorded everything that happened along the way. In his book, Mort's Relation, which is a basically step-by-step guide of what happened in Plymouth, he wrote about this land that they found at the west side of the harbor. Quote, On the Sabbath day we rested, and on Monday we sounded the harbor, and we found it a very good harbor for our shipping. We marched also into the land and found diverse cornfields and little running brooks, a place very good for situation. So we returned to our ship again with good news to the rest of our people, which did much comfort their hearts. End quote. They returned back to deliver the news of this likely good spot to land. Um, they were running out of time anyway, so this was better than nothing at this point, and it seemed like a good spot to land. On December 15th, they made their way with the Mayflower towards the west side of the Cape Cod Harbor. And in Mort's relation, Edward Winslow reports what they saw as they started to explore this land a little bit more. Quote, The harbor is a bay greater than Cape Cod, compassed with goodly land, and in the bay, two fine islands in uninhabited, wherein are nothing but wood, oaks, pines, walnuts, beech, sassafras, vines, and other trees which we know not. This bay is a most hopeful place, innumerable store of fowl and excellent good, and cannot be a fish in their seasons. Scote, cod, turbot, and herring we have tasted of, abundance of mussels, the greatest and best that ever we saw, crabs and lobsters in their time, infinite, end quote. After landing, they started to explore the land itself, not just the harbor, a bit. He continues, quote, Monday the 18th day we went aland, manned with the master of the ship and three or four of the sailors. We marched along the coast in the woods some seven or eight miles, but saw not an Indian or an Indian house. Only we have found where formerly had been some inhabitants, and where they had planted their corn. We found not any navigable river, but four or five small running brooks of very sweet fresh water that all run into the sea. The land for the crust of the earth is a spit's depth, excellent black mold, and fat in some places, two or three great oaks, but not very thick, pines, walnuts, beech, ash, birch, hazel, holly, asp, sassafras in abundance, and vines everywhere, cherry trees, plum trees, and many others which we know not. Many kinds of herbs we found here in winter, as strawberry leaves, innumerable, sorrel, yarrow, carvel, brooklime, liverwort, watercresses, great stores of leeks and onions, and an excellent strong kind of flax and hemp. Here is sand, gravel, and excellent clay, no better in the world, excellent for pots, and will wash like soap. And great store of stone, though somewhat soft, and the best water that we ever drank. End quote. Now, he continues like this for several pages in this book, Mort's Relation. But you get the idea. This land had an abundance of natural resources, mostly that of food and fresh water, which obviously is necessary to survive. As we saw in Jamestown, the brackish, terrible water of that coastline did not make good drinking water, and the lack of food in Jamestown caused indescribable suffering. Winslow states in this quote as well that they find a a place that likely had inhabitants, but no longer. We now know that this is the village of Patuxet. The pilgrims decide that this is probably the best place to settle in order to start this colony. Given natives lived here previously, 
is likely that this is a good place to live. And the pilgrims named this abandoned village that they now were making their own Plymouth. And no, they did not step off of the Mayflower onto a rock. That is, that is a myth, though there is a rock that they do call Plymouth Rock eventually, and it does have a sort of monument near where they landed on Cape Cod. But there was no rock that they actually walked off of onto from the Mayflower. So upon landing and getting all of their supplies off of the ship, construction took effect nearly immediately, and logs were brought from nearby forests to build makeshift houses. The first houses were of wattle and daub construction and had thatched roofs and offered little for comfort, but they were houses nonetheless. Single people would live with families that were not their own to save on the labor need to build more houses, but disease and illness, like many other colonies, began to mount quickly, and death was close behind. In January, just a month after landing, eight settlers died due to disease and exposure to the elements. In February, 17 died. By spring, 50% of the settlers had died, Food, which was already in short supply, was nearly gone. Oh, that's the food that they brought. And the sailors who had brought extra food for the journey home did not fare much better, though, than the settlers, as about half of them died as well. See, despite all of this great natural resource around them, they couldn't really use it or didn't know how to use it like the natives did. Again, you have to remember, this is these were native-built groves that had trees and and roots and plants and bushes that had lots of food on them if you knew what to look for. That, along with the animals that were around and the fish in the ocean, allowed for a lot of food to be available, but these pilgrims did not really know how to get it. Furthermore, there was no direct contact with natives in Plymouth once it was settled, though signs of life were seen in surrounding forests, like smoke rising from fires in nearby forests. There was a constant anxiety among the settlers that an assault could take place at any moment. This was not unwarranted, likely, as relations were already incredibly sour, as seen in one of those expeditions, and just with the history of the English, the natives were not too happy with them. An encounter on February 17, 1621, likely confirmed their worst fears. Two Wampanoag men appeared across the small creek from Plymouth at the top of the hill. Cautiously believing this may be a sign of goodwill, Miles Standish and Stephen Hopkins crossed the creek, dropped their arms, and approached with their hands up. Upon reaching the top of the hill, the Indians run back to the forest along the other side of the hill. A great war cry is heard from behind the trees, and the two Englishmen run back down the hill, calling to the village to prepare for an attack. There was no attack after this, but it's not really known whether or not there was one to begin with. We don't know if it was a bluff, an attack called off, or just some Indians having some fun with the English. Regardless, this did not help with the English anxiety, though the Wampanoag couldn't care less, as they had been engaged in a constant defensive struggle against these new enemies, seen and unseen, and weren't really ready to make new friends. To prevent any possible assaults from happening in the future, the village was fortified with cannons from the ship. No assaults did come to pass. In fact, the opposite actually occurred. On March 16, 1621, Samoset, the sachem of the Abenaki or Wabanaki, arrived in Plymouth. Everyone was utterly shocked when Samoset spoke to them in fluent English. They were also shocked at his physical size and fitness. He had come to explore the peace with the pilgrims, but tensions rose quickly as he refused to leave without some sort of deal. Stephen Hopkins stepped in to start negotiations due to his, albeit limited, understanding of Algonquin. He had learned Algonquin while he was on the island of Bermuda when he was aboard the Sea Venture that crashed there. Remember, there were a couple natives on that trip 
and he had learned some Algonquin from them. Samoset stayed the night in Hopkins' household. No one knows what was said, but whatever was said eased the tensions dramatically. It was learned that the Nauset had attacked the English in Cape Cod prior to the Mayflower landing, and this was Thomas Dermer the year before, and that they feared retribution from the English. Gifts were exchanged in the morning, and Samoset left to speak with Massasoit. And Massasoit was the leader of the Wampanoag Confederacy. This confederacy was made up of the Poconoket, the Namasket, the Pocasset, and the Sacanet. They inhabited much of the modern-day Massachusetts coast, and after first contact in the 1500s by Giovanni de Verrazzano, disease wreaked havoc on the whole population, leading to nearly 90% of the, of the Wampanoag population to die. The nearby Narragansett, however, were not quite as affected by disease, for some reason, and these Narragansett were the mortal enemies of the Wampanoag. However, a series of alliances with other tribes kept the Narragansett at bay. After several days, Massasoit arrived in Plymouth with Squanto, the last remaining resident of Patuxet, the city that was now Plymouth. They arrived with 60 other men on the hill where that previous encounter with the Wampanoag occurred. At first, this was believed to be an assault, but Massasoit and Samoset quelled their fears and called for an envoy. Edward Winslow was sent as the ambassador with six other pilgrims to discuss terms. Massasoit and John Carver then met in an unfinished house and sat on a rug together. They agreed to cause no harm to each other and closed off the deal with a puff of Massasoit's pipe. Tisquantum stayed back for a time and taught the pilgrims farming and fertilizing techniques. He also taught them how to create synergies between these different planted crops, which was a well-known technique of natives. John Carver suddenly died, though, in 1621, and William Bradford was chosen as the next governor. Because John Carver was the one who negotiated the peace previously, the pilgrims felt that they needed to solidify the alliance a little bit more, and an envoy was sent to the Poconoket village of Sawams. The journey was led by Squanto, and it took two days to arrive. They traveled through desolate and nearly abandoned countryside. They were shocked at the remnants of, of a once great people. Winslow and Hopkins met with Massasoit and exchanged gifts with him. A payment was requested by Massasoit for that stolen corn that they stole during those first explorations, and peace was reiterated with a pipe being passed between the three, though there were still many within that tribe, within the Poconoket, that were a little bit guarded. During this meeting uh, with Massasoit, Edward Winslow and Stephen Hopkins are able to get Massasoit to become a subject of King James. Now, like many of the negotiations that we've seen so far and will continue to see, it's not known exactly how much is subterfuge versus confusion versus actually good faith negotiation. But the English, after this peace offering, go on to do the same with several other sachems in the region, nine to be exact, and spread this peace agreement throughout the region. After staying the night, the village held a celebration with both the English and the natives taking part. Trade was discussed, and Winslow and Hopkins were escorted back to Plymouth. However, due to poor planning on this trip, four of the six escorts actually left the group. They found a village, though, traded for food, and eventually made it back to Plymouth after two straight days in the rain. Even with peace, small skirmishes still happened on a regular basis due to English exploration. However, despite this, the English were able to focus more on farming, fishing, and building. In the fall of 1621, after a successful harvest, 
The pilgrims invite the Wampanoag Confederation, several of these sachems within there, to a feast. Massasoit arrived with 90 people, and the two groups feasted and entertained for three days. Edward Winslow, in Mort's relation, writes of this feast, quote, Our harvest being gotten in, our governor sent four men on following, that so we might, after a special manner, rejoice together after we had gathered the fruit of our labors. They four in one day killed as much fowl as, with a little help aside, served the company almost a week, at which time, amongst other recreations, we exercised our arms, many of the Indians coming amongst us, and among the rest their greatest king, Massasoit, with some ninety men, whom for three days we entertained and feasted, and they went out and killed five deer, which they brought to the plantation and bestowed on our governor, and upon the captain and others. And although it be not always so plentiful as it was at this time with us, yet by the goodness of God we are so far from want that we often wish you partakers of our plenty. We have found the Indians very faithful in their covenant of peace with us, very loving and ready to pleasure us. End quote. Winslow continues here, saying that they, all these sachems, have quote, yielded willingly to be under the protection and subjects to our sovereign Lord King James. End quote. Now this first Thanksgiving, which we could consider this feast, is a little bit controversial, and the idea of Thanksgiving has grown to be controversial. It may be that this is a bright spot in a terrible, terrible tapestry that will eventually come to fruition. And we've already seen some of that down south, and we'll see more of it as we go on. But I think it's important to understand that this did happen, and there was there were inroads to peace. And Massasoit and all of those sachems may or may not have actually fully committed to becoming English, right? They, they probably didn't, actually. They did this as a form of peaceful gesture just to say, whatever you say, we don't want any trouble. But this did happen. The first Thanksgiving, though there was no turkey or sweet potatoes, there was a lot of corn and some other birds. It shows that history doesn't have to be brutal. It doesn't have to be all bad. It is complex. And the people that you see as the bad guys in history, the pilgrims, for instance, colonists in general, are human and complex, as are the natives themselves. This synergy with the small group of surviving pilgrims and all of these natives probably came from the fact that there were only 20-some pilgrims left at this point, and in 1621 that would change. The ship, ironically called Fortune, came at the end of 1621 with 37 new mouths to feed, but no provisions to feed them. Along with this, the merchant adventurers wanted some goods to be returned to England. They were not wanting this this investment to not actually reap any reward. Some goods were sent back with a defiant letter and an account of the first year in Plymouth. This ship would be seized, though, by the French, and all of these goods were lost. And to make matters worse for the colony, the Narragansett leader, Canonicus, sent a message to the the pilgrims that they would not ally with the English. Now, we know why the allied Wampanoag were the heated rivals of the Narragansett. And furthermore, they were willing to challenge them in battle if need be. So this prompted a wall to be built around the settlement, and this was no easy task. There was uh, about a half mile between this settlement and the nearest forest, and hundreds of trees would need to be felled in order to do this. But after about a month, the wall was complete, and the colony was now a permanent fixture on the coast of North America. Adding to these troubles, uh, there was a, a plot by Tusquantum, Squanto, to unseat Massasoit as the sachem of the Poconocat, and Bradford took Squanto's side in this conflict. The relation between Massasoit and the pilgrims remained strained after this attempt to overthrow him by Squanto. And Squanto's death on an expedition with Bradford and Miles Standish likely 
led to some of that apprehension to dissipate. Despite this, Massasoit was helpful to the pilgrims against other tribes that he did not like, such as the Massachusetts, which planned to destroy Plymouth, though the plot was uncovered by Massasoit and the English were able to counter this plot. And two major leaders of the Massachusetts were killed by Standish and his men as a result. Nathaniel Philbrick lays out how Miles Standish did this. It was not just a simple attack on a fort. It was a a trap that was set by the English. Quote, Standish lured both Wittuwamat and Pexuat into one of the settlement's houses for a meal. In addition to corn, he had brought along some pork. The two Massachusetts Panises were wary of the Plymouth captain, but they were also very hungry. And as Standish had anticipated, pork was a delicacy that the Indians found almost impossible to resist. For a quick side note, a Panisse is a sort of elite warrior in the Massachusetts. Widowamat and Pexuat were accompanied by Widowamat's brother and a friend, along with several women. Besides Standish, there are three other pilgrims and Habamak, a Poconoket translator for the pilgrims, in the room. Once they had all sat down and begun to eat, the captain signaled for the door to be shut. He turned to Pexuat and grabbed the knife from the string around the Panisse's neck. Before the Indian had a chance to respond, Standish had begun stabbing him with his own weapon. The point was needle-sharp and Pexuat's chest was soon riddled with blood-spurting wounds. As Standish and Pexuat struggled, the other pilgrims assaulted Widuwamat and his companion. And now quoting uh, Edward Winslow, it is incredible how many wounds these two Panises received before they died, not making any fearful noise, but catching at their weapons and striving to the last. And now, continuing with Philbrick, All the while, Habamak stood by and watched. Soon the three Indians were dead, and Widuwamat's teenage brother had been taken captive. A smile broke out across Habamak's face, and he said, quote, Yesterday Pexuat, bragging of his own strength and stature, said though you were a great captain, yet you were but a little man. Today I see you are big enough to lay him on the ground, end quote. This would continue into more battles, but the damage was far greater than just human life. This was a tide-turning event. Other natives grew extremely wary of the dangerous and impulsive English. They were also shocked by what they saw as the betrayal by Massazoet. This led to mass death of the natives as they were worried about farming, as they did not want to get too close to the English. And several sachems died in Cape Cod, leaving Massasoit to fill the void and gain more and more power. In 1623, the colony shifted away from communal work to individual farms, leading to a much more stable condition. This stable condition led to more attempts to explore outside of Plymouth, and, and many tried to take over other abandoned villages, though these Ventures did not end well, and mostly it was the English just ending up with more enemies than friends. Over time, trade posts were set up, and trade was established with the rest of the English settlers and the Dutch south of them, and, and many natives as well. And this led to a small monopoly of furs in the region. So, in 1626, when the merchant adventurers were disbanded, Leaving the debt that they had incurred to the pilgrims, there seemed to be a way out and a way to pay it back. However, despite this trade, this debt was not paid off for another 20 years due to very poor logistics of this trade network. The buying and selling of land also became a profitable business at the expense of the Indians, of course. Massazoa was the main seller and was often very cheap and there was no other buyer, and the new reliance on English goods only made this problem worse. However, the Plymouth was not able to expand very far. The Puritans north of them, landing in Massachusetts, quickly pushed their sphere of influence south, and despite the Great Migration of 1640, Plymouth never really grew to prominence. More than 20,000 new arrivals showed up in Massachusetts, dwarfing the size of Plymouth Plantation. Massachusetts Bay was also much more hostile, which caused a headache in Plymouth during the Pequot War, which we will talk about next episode. This rise of Massachusetts led to a departure of alliances between the pilgrims and nearby natives. These two colonies became nearly indistinguishable. 
though they did remain separate. Bradford's idea of a small, tight-knit, and godly community was falling apart. Many of the highest-ranking men left the colony to pursue their own goals, including Miles Standish and Edward Winslow. The sense of community slowly drained from the colony, but the danger of the colony was not only internal. The natives had traded for many years with the English and now owned substantial amounts of firearms and were very well trained in their use. The adoption of flintlocks over matchlocks of the Indians, but not the pilgrims, also led to a disadvantage in the colony. William Bradford remained the governor of Plymouth until his death in 1658. Despite the high point that occurred during that first Thanksgiving, it was not a rosy picture from then on. The constant buying of land and selling of land by the natives and buying of land by the English led to extreme hatred. Now this hatred would fester for decades until it eventually blew up into a bloody and devastating war. But that's for a later episode. Something I've noticed as I've worked on these episodes so far is how many times or how often it leads to a sad ending. Now, unfortunately, that trend will continue for a while. and It will eventually change. But like most histories of the world, the history of America has a lot of very sad endings. There aren't very many happy points. However, I do think it's important to bring out the good of the people involved when those good things do happen. For instance, the first Thanksgiving. I talked at the beginning about community. And this idea of community was expanded in two ways during this episode. The first way was by expanding the responsibilities of community, what people need to do in order for a community to stick together, to thrive, to be sustainable. Now, this was understood, I think, innately in people who were part of communities, these ideas. But as of yet, they were not written down, at least not recently. And the idea of the social contract was brand new. And the second expansion of community was that expansion of community uh, along cultural lines, or breaking down cultural lines, rather. The bringing together of the Indians and the English in the first Thanksgiving was important. It was fleeting, no doubt. And perhaps it was coerced or forced upon the natives due to disease and conquest elsewhere. But for a fleeting short moment, it was possible for these two people from completely different backgrounds, completely different parts of the world that had developed simultaneously, that they met in the 1620s and had a meal together without murdering each other in that moment given what we've seen so far in the New World and what we have seen throughout history in the Old World as well, this is remarkable. I bring up this moment of peace, the first Thanksgiving, the combination of two communities, not to attempt to whitewash something that is levied at history education in America consistently, but rather to allow for the good to show up when it happens. All too often, history education and and history talk ends up simplifying things down to an absurd level, to a oppressor versus the oppressed, slave versus master, king versus his subjects, proletariat versus the bourgeois. And I'm not going to get into the political philosophy of this, but that is what I'm fighting against. The idea that there is only bad history, only a continuous struggle of the oppressed against the oppressors. Now, 
how could you look at this moment, the first Thanksgiving, as fleeting as it was, and find any oppressor or, or oppressed class among them? In this moment, the natives had the ability, if they so chose, to completely wipe the pilgrims off of the map. But they did not. They had the numbers, they had the training, they could completely cut the pilgrims out of their society, and they'd starve to death. I think the narrative of oppressor versus oppressed in this story, for instance, comes from hindsight. And I think that's an unhelpful way of looking at history. In this moment, there were no specific oppressors versus the oppressed. Massazoet was making immense profits by selling land to the English. The English and the Wampanoag Confederation traded with each other, learned from each other, fought with each other, just as any two states have done throughout history. See, history is complex. There is no good narrative to use in any given moment. The oppressor versus the oppressed narrative only comes to fruition in hindsight by looking through and cherry-picking historical moments that justify that narrative. That's just the same as using hindsight and and cherry-picking to lionize the American way of life, the American nation. And it is this jingoism, this idea that America was destined to be great, that is just as pervasive and, and terrible as the oppressor-oppressed narrative. However, right now, and for the past several decades, since probably the 1980s, one of them has been dominant. Now, I don't want to go back to the jingoistic way of looking at things. By bringing forth this idea of cooperation in the native and English relationship for just a short period of time, we see the complexities of human life. It's not oppressor versus oppressed. It's two communities thinking in that moment, this is what will be best for us. The English needed the natives to survive, and the natives felt that the best way to avoid calamity themselves was to reciprocate, possibly in order to gain favor with the English to eventually attack a rival native tribe. Or perhaps they saw the humanity of the English and wanted to help them out of the good of their hearts. Regardless of the motivations of any of these people, I still think that this moment of cooperation is important to look at. Because if we were to go outside one day and stare up at the sky at night, What a sad sky it would be if there were no points of light to break through the darkness. It's all in our hands, this life of time. Let's give unto us all. It gathers round each night, each morn. We watch it pass and grow. It is all in our hands, it is all in our hands With every fear